you know, it just kind of shows you that the charitable giving goes way beyond just giving a, a transactional gift, basically, of a, you know, of a check to your favorite charity. I'm Danica Kluth, a grad student living in Fort Collins, Colorado, and you are listening to the Vance Grove Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, I sit down with Barbara Carswell, head of YouthBridge, an organization that helps people that want to donate money to great causes, but don't always know what are the best causes to donate that money to. Barbara has a unique background as an attorney and somebody really well acquainted with the tax system. So you're about to hear a conversation about how people that are in this world of philanthropy think about it, how they use that money to be able to create the largest amount of change and how they set it up so that the way that they donate it is the most tax advantaged. It may sound like kind of technical stuff, but you will get a view into the world that you don't get very often. We're gonna to get to that interview in just a moment, but first, I wanna talk a little bit about legacy interviews. This is where I sit down with individuals or couples to record their life stories so that future generations have the opportunity to know their family history. This week, I had the adult child of somebody that did a legacy interview a few months ago come in to tell me about the experience of handing the autobiography that we created to their father. They said it was one of the first times they had ever seen so much emotion out of him because he was able to touch and hold the book that held his stories. And he now was going to be able to pass this on to his grandchildren, knowing that they would be able to know where their family came from, some of his most important stories, and the things that he believed in the most. If you would like me to sit down with one of your loved ones to record their life story and ultimately turn it into an autobiography in a single day, go to LegacyInterviews.com to find out more. All right, without further ado, let's go to the interview with Barbara Carswell. Barbara Carswell, welcome to the podcast. Why does anybody need help giving away money? Well, I think it's fair to say that pretty much everybody who makes a gift or is charitably inclined, interested, does it to make a difference. And I believe often people are, aren't sure whether what they do, the money they give away or the time they volunteer really does make a difference. And the reason why they feel most of the time that way is because they don't really know an organization very well often. They know what cause they like, but they don't know that the specific organization that they are donating to really makes a difference. They don't have that knowledge. They don't have most of the time the time to investigate in that. And they just want, like most of their things in their life, to be somewhat happening efficiently without putting too much cumbersome work into that. And so... People like me, um, I believe, who have knowledge of certain communities or certain areas of, of charitable work can be a really good resource for somebody to kind of alleviate some of those frustrations. So tell me a little bit about yourself. So what do you, who do you work for and what do you do there? So I am CEO of an organization called YouthBridge Community Foundation. Um, We're based here in St. Louis, Missouri, and um, we basically connect resources with community needs. And what that means is we work with 
donors. And donors are charitably inclined individuals, families, businesses, maybe even partnering with other nonprofits to help um, get those resources that they have, whether that's cash, money, whether those are certain types of assets that could be used to um, causes in the community that, that they are interested in. Because we're a community foundation, our work is really mostly focused on our community, which means the greater St. Louis region. So I worked in nonprofits for a while, and I remember there being this like serious tension occur, which is that people would say, I want my donation not to go to administration, but the administration is what makes the brochures shiny and the photographs look really good so that people are like, ah, I'm helping those children or I'm, I'm, you're measuring these things so I can tell whether I'm making a difference. You must face this like tension all the time because people don't want it to go to administration, but administration is the thing that gets people excited or interested about the thing that they're donating to. Right. So a lot of, um, a lot of the clients or a lot of the, the, the people that we work with, um, if they discover an organization that they like, and, and again, because they are concerned about making a difference, so very often they say, I want my gift to go to a very specific program or a very specific project that an organization does, because I don't, I am worried that they are spending all this money on overhead. And, you know, there's been a lot of bad press around, particularly some of the larger organizations, that they waste everybody's money. And so I always um, talk a little bit to them, particularly when they're business people, if they own a business. I show them a, a, a pyramid that a consulting group called the Bridgespan Group has developed a few years ago about a nonprofit organization. And it really, it, it shows the, the nonprofit, the charity as a pyramid. And it shows two layers of foundation and one tip of the pyramid. And so your your very basic first layer of the foundation is a good governance structure that any nonprofit organization should have. Like, you know, you're you're dofully incorporated, you have your bylaws, you have a board that that runs um, smoothly. And then there's a second layer um, which really deals with uh, resilience and sustainability. And that of that basically evolves around fundraising and a strategic plan and in building that that second solid foundation. And then only on top on this very small tip are really the programs. And what it shows is that no organization can function. You cannot have good, impactful, effective programs if your foundation layer and your resilience layer is not there. And so this is where I encourage a lot of our donors to say, well, look, this is this is what is kind of labeled the overhead. It's really that foundation that an organization needs. And so I encourage um, donors to make uh, gifts to those layers because only then will an organization be able to run you know, impactful programs. Having said that, again, and I think that's where I or my organization can come in and help people um, is to really figure out are the organizations, are those foundations well managed and well, you know, run by an organization? Is your board structure effective? 
Um, do you do you, are your meetings run well? Um, do your do you have the relevant policies in place? You know, is there leadership development? Is there succession building? All of those um, parts that you know nobody in a regular business would question as being necessary for some reasons. Nonprofit organizations are under heightened scrutiny. Yeah, I think like there's like a clearing pressure in a <clears throat> in a capitalist market where you're like, oh well, if you don't do those things well, your company like fails. But a, a nonprofit could persuade people to thinking that they're doing well and not have those things in place. That's right. That's that. Well, although you know there is a very um, there are very strict public disclosure requirements. So every nonprofit needs to fill out um, every nonprofit unless they are associated or, or connected to a church, needs to file a tax return. A nonprofit doesn't pay taxes, but they still need to file a tax return. And that is really for disclosure. And so, um, you know, you can, if you take a closer look at those public documents, you can discern and see at least if they have the, uh, the, the basic requirements for good governance in place. But I also do believe that, um, you know, that when I look at a business, at a for-profit business, and the amount of work and the setbacks it takes to develop good products, um, when you think about a nonprofit, they are always expected to have programs that are you know, we call that in our whole world evidence-based, but that are proven to be impactful and do the right thing without or with really having a very difficult time for somebody to pay for that path to get to those products. To those uh, that's true. Like, like I see. Because when you're running a business, you're like, ah, we tried that thing and it didn't work. Right. And, oh, we had some people running that program and we had to get rid of them and that took some time and that put us setbacks. But as long as you keep going, you're okay. And people have a, a high level of scrutiny to say, don't make mistakes, nonprofit, because we may punish you by not giving you any more money. That's exactly right. So we had my foundation actually a few years ago developed a program, a grant program that specifically funds the those type of new, more innovative programs with maybe not an expectation, but certainly a, a permission to let that uh program not be successful and fail because we do want to encourage an organization to well first of all we do we we all want innovative organizations just like we want innovative companies we want innovative nonprofits because we know that a lot of the established um, programs have not worked so we need to encourage that innovation <laughs> and um, you know allowing allowing for that failure I think is an important part to getting there yeah, because nobody, that's an interesting thing to, to have a grant that specifically allows for that because nobody wants to fail. But in particular, you don't want to have like, ah, oh, we set up this whole thing and found out eh, it didn't do the thing we wanted to do. Right. But even worse, if it doesn't do the thing you want to do, but you keep it going because you don't want the failure. Right. And then you, and I think that happens with a lot of nonprofits, you know, then they go to a donor and they um, put it in a, in, in, in a, good light and always highlight the successes because typically a program is of mixed success, right? It's either 
it's it, you have very few situations where this is like you get a hundred percent success rate. So you you you're somewhat meddling in the middle, and then because you need your donors so desperately, you go out and you um, you know highlight the successes about it. And so I I think that's um, probably not a good way to to move forward. Rather, you know, cut that program and admit this is not working. So I think for most people, when they're looking at like, oh, should I donate some money? You know, we try and put money out, but they don't have a lot of resources. They look at things like Charity Navigator or any of these things where there's a number. And that number says, ah, I don't know what, I don't know what the numbers are, but let's say it's out of 10. This thing has seven stars. A group like Charity Navigator would have a lot of power in those situations by just coming up with like a single number or just a couple of numbers. What do you what are your thoughts on those types of groups? I think I actually think they are good um, because they do hold organizations accountable and do support donor reliance and I think trust build build more trust. I think the the often the issue particularly with charity navigator is it doesn't it doesn't look at every organization. And so you are in small in a smaller community somewhere, for example, and you know that you have, you know, a number of organizations doing important work there. You you may not find that organizational charity navigator because they they are not, they have not looked at every organization. So then I think you run into the issue that because a donor isn't certain am I doing, you know, am I throwing my money away or am I really, you know, able to make a difference and do something good? They might stay, they may stay clear of the one that is not featured in Charity Navigator and go to another better known and and larger organization because they say, okay, I have the the sign of approval from Charity, the seal of approval from Charity Navigator here. And does your organization do the types of things that Charity Navigator does? We 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 do um, with you know we do when we when our clients ask us to do that. Yes. So in situations that we work with, we take a we take a closer look. Um, we ask for basically sets of applications to us, and we look at um, we look at financials, which is closely aligned with what. The chair, what Charity Navigator does, for example, we look at um, the type of programs. But then, you know, the other thing I think that that you that somebody misses when they are looking at at a, at only a Charity Navigator philanthropy or charitable giving is is so driven by somebody's passion um, beyond just the interest, and I think matching the um the the right organization with someone's passion is something that you can't really do just by looking at a sheet of you know a screen or a sheet of paper that gives you a rating about an organization because you don't really you can say you can see okay this is the type of program that they that they do for example but you don't know the people that work at that organization you don't know the culture that they have you don't know you, you, you wouldn't be able to say, I can somewhat, this th- these are the type of people, in addition to the type of work that they do, that I really want to support. I think that's a piece that is missing. Yeah, because I can imagine if you're 
representing a, a, a family trust and they say, hey, we've put money in here that we want to give away. The people in that trust want to find the projects they're passionate about, the things that they care about, homelessness or um, kids without dads. But like, how are they going to take the time away from their regular jobs and the things that they're focused on to figure out what's really going on at these places? And so then you have this challenge. We, we have money to give away, but we don't know who to give it to. That's exact. That's exactly right. And often they also feel not comfortable maybe asking some harder or critical questions to an organization. They sometimes don't feel comfortable saying no. They sometimes don't feel comfortable coming back and saying, hey, I gave you money for this and that and you didn't really do it. You really didn't do what you said or you didn't do it in a timely manner. And so that's where we come in. We can be kind <laughs> that's of your like job. <laughs> the bad guys in between. Is that right? Yes, yes, yes. And it takes an enormous burden of people because I have um, I have gone um, with donors. For example, this the one situation that vividly comes to my mind is I work with a donor who supports the school that her daughters attend, high school that her daughters attend. And uh, the school fundraiser, a private school, and so the school has fundraisers. And they obviously know that this is a family that can donate and that does donate. So they have meetings. And I think our my client is sometimes uncomfortable in this situation where the girls are at school, at that school, you're sitting across from the headmaster, um, the fundraisers of the school, and yes, you want to give, but you may not want to give as much as they ask, and you don't want to be the person who says no. And so, um, you know, me being there, I can ask the critical questions, the difficult questions that would, sh that would, give my client a more, inf be able to have my client make a more informed decision. I can be the one afterwards calling saying, no, we're not going to make that gift. And it's not only that, that is not my client making the gift. Typically the, the way that we structure gifts, for example, with funds at my foundation um, also helps because it wouldn't be ultimately coming out of the client's personal checkbook at that time but it would be a gift from us of uh, one of her funds at, at our foundation. And so being able to say no and to clearly say no for uh, whatever reason, um, I think puts her in a much more comfortable situation that she would be have been able to make, you know, just on a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Yeah, I think anytime you have a proxy that can be like, yeah. well, it's, it's not me, I'm representing right. somebody else's interests <laughs> and I'm just helping you to know what they want. Like there's in our culture, that's much, much more appropriate, but uh, is an interesting service to, to, to deliver. How did you get into this world? On a very curvy line. So I started out, um, I'm originally from Germany. I started out uh, here in the United States uh, working as an attorney, tax, a tax lawyer, um, and then uh in, in D.C. and moved to St. Louis and stayed at home for several years to raise um, our son. And then when it was time for me to go back to work, I was out of my professional field for several years. And I had 
read that a lot of women make a second career in nonprofit. So I became executive director of an education nonprofit um, and then eventually switched to kind of the foundation, the grant making world. Um, and particularly as a, as a community foundation, not only do we help people give money away, we also work with their professional advisors, whether they are uh, accountants, financial advisors, estate planning attorneys, to really figure out what is, an, what is the best structure for a gift or for, you know, um, a, a current gift, a, a long-term gift, a, an estate gift. Um, what is the what is the best tax-driven or financial-driven structure? So, having been a tax attorney is a is a really big benefit to that. So let's open that up a little bit. Uh, like, I think people generally know, like, oh, if I if I donate some money, then when I get my tax return, I get to write I donated this much money, so it's that much less that they owe on their taxes. But like, how does this work? from a wider view, from the tax attorney's view. So you're absolutely right. That is, that's the general concept. You give money away and you get to take a tax deduction for it. Hopefully, um, you know, with the, um, for many people with the, um, higher standard deductions, um, itemizing deductions doesn't make any sense anymore. And so they, there's, there's a, there's a big loss on, on, on charitable deductions, but for a large amount of people, they still itemize, and so charitable deductions lead to some form. And of- this means, like, if you say, like, writing down very, very specifically, I put this much money to the botanical gardens, I put this much money to the zoo, um, then you write it up, and for most people, they get a standard deduction, which is like, we're just going to assume right. that you gave away this much money, whether you did or not. And, or people are saying, no, I want to make sure that my line items get matched up because it actually could be more than what your standard deduction is. Right. And your standard deduction takes care of more than just your charitable deduction, right? It's your mortgage. It's your state taxes. It's it's a number of items. It's some medical expenses that you would typically otherwise put on that Schedule A for um, for itemized deductions. You now all you know, if they are not that large, you all put it in that standard deduction. But many people still are able to um, to itemize their deduction and so take specific charitable deductions. So the, in the example that you just described, um, you know, a number of gifts to different organizations, you would um, you would make a number of gifts, and that is. Sometimes, often that that works really well, but sometimes that's not the most tax efficient way to do it. So let's say you have a big um, cash event in any given year. You get you you have money. You sold the company, and now all of a sudden you, you sold have a- the company. You got a big. If you're employed, you got a big bonus somewhere. You you have you first of all you have to be charitably inclined. You want to give money away. Otherwise, all of these, you know, transactions don't work. But but let's say you, you're just even a regular person who supports their church, maybe, you know, some a school and a few other organizations. Um, and now you have all this money in one year. So you certainly 
don't want to give all that money away in this in this one year to all these different organizations you may say well next year i might not have that much money so is there a way how i could somehow put that money somewhere take advantage of a tax deduction and actually make the ultimate gifts at a later time and that is where um this, these vehicles known as charitable funds, um, the, the most well-known is, is what's called a donor-advised fund, come in. So you would, in a very specific example, you would establish a donor-advised fund with a community foundation like mine, like mine, like ours, like Youthbridge Community Foundation. Um, you would take advantage of your larger cash uh, you know, event and would put money into that fund because we are a public charity, you get an immediate tax deduction that year, but then you have that money in the fund, you invest it, it can grow, and then you ultimately on your own time and terms can distribute that money to the organizations that you want to support. So that's kind of the general tax concept behind it. Um, very basic. So it offers you the advantage of being able to basically time your charitable gift. Um, the other advantage that it has is, you know, you were, you, we were talking earlier about, I have these assets, um, that most people, when they think about charitable gifts, they think about giving cash away. Um, but we all know that 90% of the wealth in this country is in assets other than cash. And so particularly when you like to support smaller organizations, for example, sometimes they don't have the ability to accept gifts other than cash. So again, foundation like mine, um, we often get gifts other than cash into that donor advised fund. Be more specific. So for so somebody very, that's sitting there, yeah, they yes, don't know. So very, uh, the most common one is public stock. So instead of, so, so let's say a few years ago, you bought stock for $10 a share. Um, now it has grown to a hundred and you said, I would like to make a charitable gift. You could sell that stock. You could have 90 dollars in gain you'd have to pay capital gains tax on that you'd and then you'd get a you'd, you'd get a tax deduction for your 90 dollars that you are ultimately you know giving away but you'd also have to pay capital gains tax on that so if you donate the stock that's worth a hundred your organ the organization that you support gets a hundred dollar gift because they are able to they take the stock, then turn around, sell it. So they get, you know, $100 worth of gift. You are never taxed on your $90 in gain because it never hit your You never took books. a capital gain on it. Right. Okay. All right. And you also get to take a $100 tax deduction because you made a $100 charitable gift. Oh. But that... You know, some most organizations by now are able to take these kind of gifts, but there are still some smaller ones that don't. So again, running that through a fund, running that through a donor advised fund, for example, is a way how you can, um, you know, 
take advantage of of that type of asset. But you talked about a business, for example, business interest. So you can you can actually donate a a, a part of your business, a share in your business. So we worked with a client a few years ago that transitioned um, that transitioned his business to his son. So he um, set up, and he was charitably inclined and knew that out of the proceeds from that sale or transition to his to the next generation to his son he wanted to have some money for charitable giving set aside so um that the business um created a certain class of shares they established a donor advised fund they donated or they they contributed the shares into that donor advised fund um we held the shares for a while, and then the company, which was then now owned by the son, redeemed that stock back, um, and you know for a certain price, and funded the um, the don't advise fund with it. So there are a number of situations, particularly in business transitions, um, that charitable giving is actually really um, a really good way of mac again minimizing your your tax exposure. I've I've heard people talk about the value of doing like donating art, and that this is like. But I I don't. Is it just the same as donating stock, or how how does no. how does it work? Yeah. So donating art, um, and donating stock, a lot of it um, depends on the amount that you can deduct, because as I just you know showed you in that example about that stock gift, your stock that you bought for $10 and that has grown to $100 um, has this inherent gain of $90 that you want to avoid having to recognize for tax purposes. And in the case of, of stock, you are able to take that full $100 value that you made as a gift, as a deduction. With art and other pieces of what we call tangible property, so, you know, things that you can grasp, see, um, there is, a, there is a, a, a criteria of whether you donate something that can be used, that is, that is necessary for that organization's mission. So a piece of art that you donate to a museum for example, to an art museum, for you as a donor will be treated differently for tax purposes than when you give this piece of art to a food pantry that then turns around and sells it. Because, you know, in that latter case, the food pantry is not using the art to carry out its mission. Um, what that means for you as a donor is if your piece of art is now worth, uh, you know, a thousand dollars. For example, you bought it somewhere for a hundred. You only get to deduct a hundred dollars. If you donated it to the art museum. No, to the food pantry. To the food pantry. Yeah, right. If you donated it to the art museum, then you get to you you get to deduct the value of it because it is carried on, in in that organization's, you know, it is part of that organization's mission. But if it's donated to the food pantry, which really doesn't need the art to carry out 
the mission, it needs the money, the value from the art to carry out the mission, then you as a donor only get to deduct whatever it costs you to. Um, oh, this is interesting. And I would imagine there are uh, like games make it sound not, not like on the board, but like you could probably set up situations in which you give it to an art museum and you still own it for a while right. while it's appreciating, right. but they're taking care of the right. art. Right, there are all these there are all these structures, and I will tell you to you know all your listeners on um, on this podcast, you always have to be very very careful when you donate, um, particularly pieces of of tangible property, but also you know more complicated assets. You have to be very careful when you do that to really work closely with your accountant because in addition to what is the appropriate amount to deduct there are also reporting requirements that the IRS is really really strict about and so you can just miss a what you think is a very small formality and it there are enough case court cases out there and they can result in a you know, huge uh, loss of your expected deduction. Like what? Like what? Get. What's a tiny formality that somebody didn't didn't take care of? That you need for for gifts like the art or 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 other pieces, you need appraisals, for example, and those appraisals need to be done on a certain like everything you know needs to be documented on a certain tax form with certain requirements on an appraiser for an appraiser, but they also need to be done contemporaneously at the time of the gift. So you have to meet a certain time frame. You can't get something appraised. And it's like, okay, yeah, three years ago I had this appraisal and now I'm going to donate that. So there are, there are very specific requirements that all need to happen and that all need to come together at the right time to really make these types of gifts um, to be recognized as a charitable uh, gift and expenditure. So what are the other ways in which people that are thinking about donating money and also using it as a as a way to protect their themselves from tax events that people might not think of if they're not in this world? So I I would think um to to really think about in terms of assets what is there that you know that I have wealth in and that I could possibly use to um, to fund my my charitable interest. So you know we touched on the stock, we touched on the business interest. Real estate is 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 another big piece that people often donate that they said, okay, I have a I don't know a an apartment complex or, okay. or you know as just just a just a piece of real estate, a house or an apartment or something that I really don't need or none of my kids need. Um, so I could donate that to, um, to charity. So that's, that's in terms of the asset. The other piece is, and we haven't really talked about that, are, are, are types of structures. So think about saying, yes, you know, I, I would like to support whatever organization, particularly as I get older, though, I also need money and I'm worried about if I give, um, you know, that money away now, I won't have 
I live. I end up living till I'm a hundred, and now I'm not going to have access to that money. So right, or I want to provide for, I don't know, some some other person. You know, even still in in, in my lifetime. So there are certain structures that you can do, whether they are trusts. Um, there's there's what's called a charitable remainder trust, but there's also a, a what's called a charitable gift annuity um, that are structures where you actually make a gift and the gift that you make to the charity is paying you back for certain terms of years. So in in the sense of a gift annuity and a, and a, and a trust, they are just set up a little bit different as legal structures, but the concept is the same. You contribute, let's say, $100,000, either directly to charity or to a trust that then pays out. Um, you get money back during your lifetime, or you and your wife get money back during um, their lifetimes, or a son or whoever you set this up, or a nephew gets money back during their lifetime or for a certain amount of years, and then the remainder of that goes to charity. So it's not often a question of, okay, I have to give it away all at once now um, or, you know, and part with that money completely and never see it again. Um, there are these type of, of, of structures where you actually give the money away, but you for a certain amount of time get to keep some. There is that situation also um, for a house, for example, that you live in right now. You say, I would like to give my, you know, house that I live in ultimately to charity, but I need to live in for that house for a while still. Um, so you can give that house on today to charity, but you can retain a life interest in um, in living in that house. And so then you could take the tax deduction in that year when you say, hey, I'm giving this away. Let's say the house is worth two hundred thousand dollars. You cannot, I, you don't take a full deduction, but it does have some tax benefits to it okay. as well. And this is actually a way how, um, you know, a lot of people, for example, uh, a fund uh, going into a retirement home, if that retirement home is run as a nonprofit organization as well, because they donate that house. They say, okay, 10 years down the road, I am going down into that retirement home. And so on day one, they donate the house to the retirement home, but retain an interest in it for 10 years to live in it, and then use that donation as part of their um, expenses at the retirement home. So you get into really complicated tax structures there, but you know it just kind of shows you that the charitable giving goes way beyond um, just giving a, a transactional gift, basically, of a you know of a check to your favorite charity. No. And if you were giving away your house, just like the art to an art museum, but if you were giving away your house to be used, so let's imagine, hey, I'm going to use th this house is now going to become uh, a place for disabled children. Right, right, right. Does that change the nature of the gift in the same way that art does? Um, whether it changes by well, I don't, I. Don't know. Um, no, I don't think so. I think real estate is, in terms of you give the house to an organization that would actually really use it for their for their mission and their purpose, 
yes, you get you get it's it's basically treated like stock. Okay, it's yes. that's for the value. And then an organization, you know, plenty of organizations get houses um, that have no need for it. Um, we have received real estate that just as a gift to fund the fund. And then again, we just, we turn around and those organizations would turn around and sell that property. Um, I will say you often get a phone call from, from people that are interested in give, in donating a piece of real estate to a, to a charity. Um, and then it turns out that the real estate itself is really not that valuable or it's not that sellable. And you don't want to, you know, you'll, you'll have a hard time donating that. I see. Because like uh, somebody might imagine, hey, I don't have to go through the trouble of selling this exactly. property. I could give it away. <laughs> and then the place getting it is like, well, we don't want to have to. Well, and there's a lot of costs associated. Right? Yeah, you yes. got to pay taxes right, and right, you got to right. make sure it's maintenance right. and insurance on it. And... Right. So you said you're an executive director, uh, which means you are on the side of the fence where you are needing money from other people, from the generosity of other people. Let's talk about like the experience of the person that is a development director, right? They're trying to develop relationships. They're trying to build the, the um, I don't know, the opportunity to ask for money. Excuse um, me, can we pause for a minute? Yep. For a restroom break? Yeah. Sorry. I'll be back in just a moment. Okay. Sure. That's actually really interesting. <laughs> What's that? Your questions are very interesting. Good. Oh, I'm glad to hear. Yeah, this is. I'm. I'm totally engaged. This is like something I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm very interested in, and I'm certain that it's very complex. Yes. It's yes. very complex, and you know nobody should ever go and make a gift. You know, and with I think the the problem is really with those expectations often in terms of really figuring out what the what the structures need to be. I mean, that's that gets into really sophisticated estate planning, financial Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Planning. I imagine there's a lot of creativity in this yes, space. The, yes, the right yes. the right accountant, the right attorney, yes, the right, yes. like, could come up there with There is a trust. So, you know, there's that trust that I just mentioned that's called a charitable remainder trust where you put the money in the trust. You, you get the people whether it's you as the donor, the grantor, or, you know, others will get money for their lifetime or a certain amount of years, and then the remainder goes to charity. Um, there is also the reverse, where charity gets, you set up a trust, charity gets money for a certain amount of time, and then the remainder goes to back to you as the grantor. Oh, wow. And people use that. That is so complicated you have to have a the right uh, interest rate structure because the the whole deductibility of charitable deduction, right? This is where you get into this time value of money and what can I deduct at that certain amount of time? So you need to have this the right interest rate environment as well as certain type of assets in there. They put like a lot of I think municipal bonds and others because that trust in itself is a taxable entity. And so, but when you, you know, combine that with like tax-free assets, I mean, it's so complicated. Um, so we don't, we don't do that. We are the type of people who know enough about that where, you know, we can talk to the financial advisors and I can run like illustrations on how this would look like. Um, and, but we are the recipients often of these charitable payouts because, you know, when you think about situations like that, 
that you know on day one when you set this up what charities you want this to go through is to go to is really not likely you may know okay i want this to go to these maybe you know two or three charities there may be others there may not so if you let all of this go into a donor advised fund you're much better off because then at a later point you know you have the charity that's the recipient officially i.e the donor advised fund but you have you take your time to really then say or figure out where you want this ultimately gift this ultimate gift to go to so you're an executive director of a, of a charity and that means you were on the other side of the fence where you were actually needing the generosity of others. And that requires raising money. And I think the like colloquial term now is a development director. Let's talk about like, what does it feel like to be on the other side of the fence, trying to build relationships, and then ultimately making that ask for money? It is... Um... I, I So I'm going back in time when I did, you know, when I was executive director back then. And I think most often um, it's just like anything else. It's a huge learning experience because you, you, you start out in this job, I think, being intimidated often by your donors or your potential donors because you perceive them as people that have money. And that can decide not only, you know, are they supporting the organization that you work for, but also in a way, are they supporting your professional career? Right? Because you're, you make a career in that field, so you have to show something for your work and um, your gifts are the, the product of your work. So I think people are often when they start out are really intimidated. Um, hopefully they develop in their career that they really learn to build the relationship with the donors and really realize that a donor gives out of a deeply human feeling and, and, and sense that whatever motivates them, whether they just want to do something good, whether they, you know, have um, a loved one that, you know, struggles with a disease or disability, and so it affects them immediately, and they want to support organizations that do that type of work, or whether, you know, they it's it's their church or school that they want to give. And so I think once once you are um, as a as a as an executive director or a development director, when you understand where these donors come from, then I think you can really start building the relationship with them. And then it's not so much about, I, I have to make an ask for the need of my organization. It's kind of you, you're really able to, to turn that a, around into saying, I'm really wanting to help that donor because I know we're the right organization doing that type of work and carrying that mission that that person is passionate about and wants to support. And so your transactional, I'm going to make an ask, is really going to turn much more into a partnership or quote unquote friendship where, you know, you you tell your story and about the work that you do and your donor will say, 
yes, I want to help I them. I want to be a part of that. I yeah. want to be a part of them. I want to help them get to where they need to get. That transition you're talking about is remarkably similar to sales, right? Where sales is really transactional if you're saying like, hey, I have this widget and I want to right. see if I can get you to pay right. for this widget right. versus like, hey, this widget solves a problem that you have and let's like find like let's find the right way to get this widget integrated into what you're doing. Is development sales? Um, it is part of it is sales, but it shouldn't be really. That's not, you know, the that's not the good piece. I think to be fair, you probably have to start off in a way because you have to figure out who are the people that, you know, you have to find that person that is interested. But in the long run, if you're if your strategy and it's not a sale of a of a you know a gadget for a nonprofit, it's it's typically kind of that, oh, there's this huge need out there. Come and support the need. That's kind of I see as the as the equivalent to, you know, that that gadget that you are widget that, that you are trying to sell. And you need to be able, yes, so in that regard, I would say that is that sales component, but you need to be able to say there's a need, but you need to now be able to really turn that into um, really helping your helping your donor. You're a development director. You're just starting out in your career. How do you find people that want to give money away to begin with? That's a, uh, yeah. That's, that's always a, sub, a struggle for somebody. You you really should start. And I think there's always the notion, and particularly you get that from a lot of boards, saying we need to find new donors. We need to find more donors. We need to find new donors. And so maybe that concept of just going out and finding all these people is the wrong is the wrong point to start. You really should build on the existing relationships that you have. So whether they are with your existing donors that you want to see, well, you know, Joe Smith really likes what we do and Joe Smith is, um, is has been very supportive of us, but nobody has really ever gotten to know Joe Smith. And I'm going to spend some time in knowing him a little bit more. And so, you know, because you do that and because you really understand Joe Smith and what he's particularly interested in your organization about, so his $100 annual gift may now turn into $1,000, for example, because he really gets to know your organization so much better. Um, so so that is one way to start. This, the second start is Go to your board and see, you know, people that have joined a board of an organization typically do that already because they have an interest in the organization. So they are, there is a, there is for a lot of organization an expectation that a board member contributes financially. But again, that expectation is very transactional. So getting to know your board member and really understanding why why are they on there why are they on this board why are they interested in what we do um, helps helps you potentially you know to raise some more money from there but they also you you start to develop your board members into being really good ambassadors for you as an organization because it's one thing for a staff member to go out and find the 
people and, you know, build the relationships, make the case. But if you're a board member of an organization and you go out to dinner with your friends and you say, hey, I'm on the board of this organization and I'm really, really passionate about that organization. And let me tell you about, you know, why I like them. And you say that to your friend, you're not really asking them for money, but they may get really interested and excited as well. And so that that kind of developing that we call that in our world as this professional term of a whole culture of philanthropy in the organization, that really saying it is everybody's responsibility to go out and build the relationships that that bring the support of your organization, I think is a is an invaluable tool for a uh, development uh, directed to to find new sources of money. Yeah, I don't, did you watch the show Mad Men at all? I did. So uh, one of the most fascinating scenes I remember, because I, I worked in nonprofits and have been on the boards before, is they they uh, they approach Don Draper and they say, "You've just been invited to be on a board, right?" And this is a big moment because they're saying one of the benefits of being a part of this is that you will get to meet other people that are spending their right. times on boards. Right. Is that is that an accurate representation that people get to be a part of like a, a different side of culture when they're on boards? I think for some organization it is. Um, you know, in the nonprofit world, just like in, like in so many other aspects of our lives, there is really a difference between between organizations, between what I would call maybe the institutions in 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 a certain community versus the smaller um, organizations that are often grassroots or or you know work more in the trenches. And so people that will join boards of um, certain well-known institutions, I would say, go in probably with that expectation that there is a lot of that, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for um, kind of networking at the, at that level. Um, there are also often very high financial expectations from board of board members to contribute to the organization. So it is certainly, I, I think it, and that's probably the type of board that, you know, yeah, they were doing that. Don Draper was yeah. was going on, um, versus you know more the grassroots uh, smaller organizations that often get board members really for their professional expertise. So, you know, they uh, we all have. I mentioned that earlier, right? The governance, the good governance structure of a board, and so part of really probably the most important responsibility of a board member is to make sure that the financials of an organization are sound. So you do need to review a financial statement every month or so as a board member. You will want to have a CPA on a board typically who can, you know, read a financial statement, understand that. You will want, uh, I don't know, depending on what the mission of the organization is, maybe somebody who works in that field professionally, you will want to have a lawyer on there. Um, so, so smaller organizations really recruit board members for their professional experience versus the larger ones and the better established ones, better known ones that often recruit people for their statue in the community. 
when you're a development director, you meet with maybe your manager and you kind of get together and you put together like an ask for people. How does that get set up? How does how does a nonprofit decide how much they're going to approach a person for? There's a lot of research behind it. So um, there are all types of uh, commercial products available that actually tell you about the wealth of a person. And so, again, at least the larger organizations that have the resources to buy those type of um, software um, will invest in it and clearly draw up donor profiles. The smaller ones that may not, you know, be able to invest in that type of sophisticated product, though, too, will will internally somehow, you know, develop a profile of a donor or a potential donor and really figure out... Um, what are the connections that that person has? What What's the giving history? So somebody who will, you know, for 10 years, for example, will have made a $100 gift every year to an organization. You know that that person is supportive of the cause. I don't think you need to go back to that person and try to convince them that, about the value of the type of, you know, work that you do. They already show that by having supported you for 10 years. But they also may have a much higher potential than just $100 every year. And so in that situation, you probably want to think about some kind of plan of really, this is the exact type of donor where it's time to kind of maybe make that transition from that transactional $100 gift to really learn more about that person. Yeah, I remember. And, oh, go ahead. And then, you know, see, is that a person who is, you know, maybe is just going to give us now, I don't know, what, $250, $500, $1,000 a year? Or is that even a person that if we really approach them with a specific program that could make, make a major gift? to um, our organization or, you know, even further down the road that we can continue talking about and that maybe is interested to to make a gift from the estate. So there are, um, I don't think that there is, nobody will have just one plan. I mean, it's, it, to, to really do this well, you will, it will be so donor tailored and so individually tailored. Um, yeah, meaning that if you're running a summer camp and you say, oh, we need new cabins, maybe this is time when we go ask Mr. John Smith, hey, would you, you know, we've seen you donated $100 a year for 10 years. You've really been a great supporter. Would you would you like to give a larger gift and then we would be able to get this cabin built? Right. And because he was a camper there and sees the value in it, that might be a time when he steps up. Right. But because you've done the research, you know he can't afford it, he just maybe hasn't been asked. Right. But you also should have probably had lunch with him three, two to three times before without asking him for anything. <laughs> I think that's the other piece. And I will tell you now that I work on the other side, now that I am a donor or work with donors, um, I am still really surprised by how, um, how little uh, nonprofits invest in that time of just the plain thank you. 
And by that, I don't just mean a plain thank you of I'm writing you a thank you note. Um, I think at least you pick up the phone and call. Um, but you go out with it. You invite that person for lunch. And you, or, you know, if you don't feel comfortable, if that's not possible physically, you pick up the phone. But not just to say thank you, but also to to just tell them what's going on in the organization and what has what has your gift accomplished. And even if it's a $100 gift that was part of, you know, a $10,000 project, you really, you talk about that, that big project and what the gift has meant. And you do not ask at that point. And the largest gift, honestly, that I have seen happening from donors have come out of absolutely no ask. It is just that an, that, you know, an organization has taken the time to thank and appropriately and keep that donor informed about what is going on in the organization and how their gift has contributed to it. So I'm super curious though, if you are a donor and you, you know that people see you as having a lot of money and you go out to several lunches with a person that's trying to raise money in the back of your mind, are you like, here comes the ask? Oh, here comes the ask. Or right. how does that, how does that right. go? Oh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm absolutely sure. But then how nice it is if you don't get asked. Is it nice? I think it is nice often because I do think that um, you do want to eventually being asked, right? But you don't want to go and see somebody once a year and say, okay, here is exactly that situation. What they, what you just described, they are super friendly to me um, because they know I have money. They take me out once a year. They're going to ask me. How refreshing is it, I think, because you can always say no if you don't have the time and just be taken out or, you know, write a, write a letter um, and, and just, you know, Tell them what's going on. I will now go back to our, you know, to, to start up the conversation. I think, again, this is this is where the help with the giving can come in. Because, um, you know, I, as, as working with donors, know a lot about them than any individual organization does. Because you also always have to think about, when you think about your own charitable interest and in where you give to, you don't just give to one organization, right? You give to, I think the average is like five or six that organizations that that people give to. And so I as a kind of as a as as an advisor know that donor and know that person's entire interest and what they like and how they like to interact. So as the intermediary, I can also work with the nonprofits and advise them on this is this is really what this donor is expecting. And so I think I've helped a lot of organizations that way of saying, look, we have I I work with a donor, for example, for whom it is extremely important that um, people take the time to, you know, go out with him and tell him what's going on, that people don't just send a three-line email saying thank you, um, That, but that they also use his very generous gift, 
maybe not officially as a match, but as a tool to get others to give. So he wants to see that money used that way. I'm able to tell that to an organization. Um, I think, you know, again, we go back to our initial part of the conversation. If it was just the, 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 the donor and the nonprofit relationship, that probably that knowledge would never come through, right? Then I work with, with another family that doesn't care about that type of work at all, that, that type of thank you at all, because their giving is very structured and they come together as a family board twice a year and they um, ask for, you know, very formal applications from organizations and uh, they do go and they do go out and visit those organizations, but they are all about doing that in a very structured way and getting uh, an, an official report back. And for them, it's all about that whole process of having an organized giving versus that donor stewardship and that really personal touch. So what is the type of family that comes to you or, or trust group that comes to you? Do they have to have a certain amount of money in order to be able to use the resources? No, they don't. They, we, um, we work in one capacity or the others with all different types of levels um, of um, financial, uh, financial levels. I would say people that, you know, have smaller amounts, they typically come to us because we help them set up a good structure. You know, one of those funds that I mentioned that they will use more as a, as a savings account type for charitable giving. Um, and then, you know, we have others that, that do come to us. And I loosely use the term family because sometimes they are a family in the sense that you that you think of a family, you know, multi-generational. Sometimes it is a situation of uh, family members slash friends of an original donor that come together as a group. Sometimes it's a single person that, uh, you know, is a divorcee and has, um, uh, you know, has children that are not yet involved in the giving. So, so, you know, it's, it's all, it, it is all different types uh, of, of, of really donors that come and that we help. And again, it's very, very specific about somebody's situation and about somebody's wish and intent what to do with money. So let's talk about that. When people come to you, do they already know what they want to donate to? Some do and some don't. Um, the ones that that do, some of them, again, don't require a whole lot of our help outside of just basically using our platform to do this in an efficient way. Others know exactly where they want to give to, but are very are not organized. And so we help them put all their giving together in a more organized way even if it's just putting together that fund where everything comes out of one pot of money and showing them in big spreadsheets of, you know, here's where your money goes to these specific types of areas and an organization that helps them gain an overview. And then you have others that, that just, that come and say, I'm interested in, for example, 
early childhood or I'm interested in education or I'm interested in um, making, you know, helping the homeless. And then we start working with them on helping identify what are, you know, organizations that they may want to support. So you've been in the, you focus on the St. Louis region. I've been living here for about 10 years. St. Louis seems like uh, dire straits in some ways, particularly downtown. What do you see about the, the needs that are going on in the community that somebody that's not doing your work might not see? There are, there, there are a lot. And, and I agree there is, um, you know, it seems to, to people always, we always read the bad things about St. Louis and we, and, and we certainly have so many problems and, um, and, and, and particularly around violence that make people really feel, um, very pessimistic about St. Louis, but I can also tell you that there is that there is a lot, a lot of work going on that, and a lot of good work and a lot of momentum. I think that is um, that you know I'm hopeful that ultimately will lead some results. What what I think that people um, you know often may may not know or, or should think about is is really. You know, a lot of the problems that we see are symptoms of, of you know, rather that they, they, they're symptoms of something rather than really the, the root cause of it. So um, I am really, so we as a foundation focus a lot of our work around children and children and families. So we, so I believe education is obviously a critical um piece of a of a of a child's life um in starting early we know is you know children that start early in, in in a good or decent education are much more likely to be successful later in life but i always go back to the situation where a child cannot even learn if it's not connected to its family and not connected to the community so a lot of work really needs to go on at the at a, at a community development level um, I'm very excited. We as a foundation do some of uh, some actually of our financial investments now in communities. Um, I think housing, when you think about the city of St. Louis, there are some really, you know, areas that have a lot of empty lots, rundown houses. But when you look a lot of at a lot of these places, People live there, children live there, families live there, and a lot of the housing stock is really actually pretty housing stock. So to to really start investing into those neighborhoods and, and create neighborhoods again that, you know, center around, I don't know, a church, a grocery store, a bank, and, and all these all these places that we take for granted. Um, is is an important piece, and and there is a lot of work done and work being done, and so I, I do think that um, that that is something that people should take hope in for our for our community and should support. You know, the other overarching, but but that is you know, that is an issue that is facing the entire nation is that we really have a crisis with young people with mental health. I was reading, um, and this has already been pre-COVID and everything has gotten so much worse after COVID. But even pre-COVID, we had in, um, and this is in our suburbs, 
almost 20% of teenagers have thought about suicide. So the, the thought of that suicide is even somewhere an option in somebody's head and how many young people really struggle with um, mental health issues, depression, anxiety, um, consider and some, you know, succumb to suicide is, is, is awful. So I think, you know, mental health is, is just a very, very important, um, part of, of, of our, you know, of, of, of our support that we need to give now. Yeah. I think that goes in line with all the things you were describing before. I mean, I had a, a guest on the podcast a few uh, weeks ago, Yosha Bach, actually also from Germany, that talked about community, the lack of community being one of the biggest drivers of people not having strong mental health. And it's because uh, community gives you hope. It gives you something right. to be a part of. It gives you a way to lift up. And if you don't have housing and if you have violence and if your parents, you know, family structures aren't good, like it, it's nearly impossible to imagine how you would have a community that would keep people out of this. And then on top of that, I don't think the mental health is just in those areas. Like if I zoom the camera lens out, right, it's going on in, you know, like the nice suburbs of St. Louis. Absolutely. And it's like a, a real challenge because you, like I always describe that I grew up in like a 1950s style community. And uh, I mean, I didn't know anyone in that was contemplating suicide. And maybe it was, certainly it was going on with some people. People didn't have as like, as uh, integrated of lives as I did, but like it does seem like it is a lot bigger of a problem now. It is. Now, you know, having said that, I was at a I, I was at a dinner the other night and a gentleman asked me, um, he said, I have always given to my church and to my alma mater. And um now he wasn't that explicit, but he basically said, now I have a family member that has, as he described it, issues. Should I support organizations that support that, that issue, that issue, that type of work? Um, fortunately, somebody else jumped in into that conversation and said, well, it's a neither nor. And, and I agree with that. Right. And I always take the, I always take the approach with every donor that I work with is I would never steer anybody in any direction of what people should give to, right? There are issues that we are aware of and that have become more to the forefront. But to me, there is not a good or bad charity or, or good or bad cause or anything that should be, you know, is preferable one over the other. Um, somebody you know, maybe completely passionate about art and is supporting art museums or various cultural institutions, that is, you know, as valuable and important as somebody who is supporting the mental health organizations. That's an important you know, distinction for you. I, I, I do. I do. I do not pass judgment on that. Yeah, because I was, as we were talking about earlier in the conversation, when I said about Charity Navigator, right, I was describing that as like an immense amount of power, right? right? Because if they decide, ah, you know, their financials don't look that good, we're going to downgrade them. That could that could leave the that could really leech a lot of money out of an organization. Maybe it's a good thing, but like it's a lot of power. And in your case too, right? If people are coming and they're saying we trust you 
to help us get our money towards the activities that we think are benefiting the world and you 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 are picking and choosing that's a lot of uh responsibility right where i do pick and choose is within that certain um field that you know the donor that i work with has identified um because i do i i do believe that there are organizations that are stronger than others um you know, mine is, and I am a little bit in that charity navigator field. I look at organizations very much from a financial perspective because I do want to tell my donor, I, I want to make sure that when somebody supports an organization, that that organization is going to be around. Mm. You know, we can all have different opinions on effectiveness of programs i think you have to be such a specialist in a in in a very specific area to really say one specific program is better than the other um and again let's go back to art because then it's really easy right so somebody you have the contemporary museum versus a traditional museum for example that you want to support right there is not one that's better than other it's just it's very different types of art but what I would be looking at is, is the contemporary as, you know, are, is, is, the, is the one museum financially as sound and resilient as the other one? And if I see that it's not, because, for example, they don't have any reserves, they, you know, constantly run deficits, they just, you know, basically survive on an annual appeal and a goal that they have to meet every year. I would not recommend that organization to my donor. So, um, because I would just because it'd be horrible if their uh, their art went up for auction for right. to pay debts. Right, and they would they go out of business. Yeah. So, you know, that's that that type um, of recommendation. Yes, I do that. What a, what an interesting like. Uh, world to have to be in. How do you keep track of all? You must go to a lot of lunches. I do. <laughs> I do go. Yes. It's, it, it was quiet during COVID. Now it's picking up a little bit. Yes, I do go out a lot to a lot of, um, there, there are, you know, there are a lot of community events, gatherings, groups that I belong to. Um, are you a social butterfly? You don't strike me as a social butterfly. I'm not antisocial by any means. No, I do. I do like to go out. It's really mostly about learning, um, you know, what, what's happening in a, in our community, who's doing the good work, um, sharing with my peers at other foundations. Um, so yes, there is, um, I am out and about a good bit. Well, I think you'd have to be like in order to know what all is going on. Like there are so many organizations what are the types of organizations that you think are in a community like St. Louis that people don't know anything at all about? I don't know. There are too many of them to say. I, I will just tell you this honestly because I think the first thing that you hear about nonprofits is like we're always the best, the best kept secret. Um, I think you mean that nonprofits say that about themselves? Yeah, about themselves, exactly. <laughs> because it is so difficult to get the. It, you know, I thought about this often. I think it's it's on the one hand difficult to get to to get your message out because people are inundated with so much. 
But I remember one time I was visiting an organization um, in Jefferson County that is doing, um, that is actually a home for people with severe, severe disabilities. So those are people that cannot, absolutely cannot live on their own, that, for example, have to be on feeding tubes, <clears throat> have to be attended to two, three times, you know, a night. Um, and I was thinking when I came, and, and it's pretty hard to take, right, when you're not used to that and you visit places like that. It's hard to take for adults. I've visited places where children um, were in those situations. And I sometimes think that those organizations have a difficult time being out there and everybody being known because we don't want to hear that. You know, we don't want to. Do you want that in your face all the time? No. No, to even think about it. To is, even is think a hard about thing. it. Yeah. Yes. And so I think sometimes it's it's not that organizations are doing terrible work in their marketing. So first of all, they are all constrained by, you know, they don't have a, the marketing budget of like an Anheuser-Busch here in town or or some other big company. Yeah, and but as soon like as they anything, do, they'll get dinged just, for you're spending exactly. too much money on marketing and not enough so, on that. So they have very, they have to do tremendous amount of work with very, very little, um, with very little money. And I think then that compounded that by often who wants to have their inbox flooded, right, with these messages of um, all these doom and gloom? It's it's really difficult. That, by the way, is also why you have such a burnout. I think, you know, that's which is a real problem in the nonprofit world. You have an incredible burnout of staff, particularly, you know, the people that, that are in social services because... They, they are not paid that well. They have very difficult jobs, and it's it takes an emotional toll to take Gosh, the, your example is really good because it's visceral, right? And I think of the person, you know, they're always like, tell your story, tell your story, tell your story. And if what you're doing is telling the story over and over and over again about people that are severely disabled and that have to be cared for and um, I mean, I've been to mental health homes where like the yelling itself, these right. are not things that the, the people can control, but it's like uh, unnerving. And if that's the story you're telling over and over and over again, that's going to leave a mark on you. Yeah. I never forget. Um, and, you know, and I am not I'm in that good position. I'm not I'm the one funding those organizations. I don't work in that environment all the time. But I remember one day I was doing I was visiting two or three organizations the same day. And I, and you know, they are all, all of them, what they have in common is they are addressing issues, shortfalls, needs in our community. And so I went from one situation to the next, to the third, and I came home and I thought, this is awful. I just, you know, I can't do that much because you start, and then I think I went out that night for dinner um, with my husband and I saw all these people sitting around having a, you know, jolly good time. And I'm thinking that's really, you know, do they even know all the things that are happening and that are going on? Yeah. And these are the, the, uh, the hard part about life, right? Like when people look around like a young person saying, I want to go out and change the world. I want to do something right. good and look, these people are happy and there's so much suffering, but if you only stay in the suffering, right. it's hard to, to make a big yeah. difference. 
Well, Barbara, I had no idea where this conversation would go, but I'm so <laughs> glad you came good, in. Good, good. If people wanted to learn more about your work, YouthBridge, or just uh, in general, where, where could they go to hear more from you? The easiest place is probably just to go to our website. It's called youthbridge.org. And, um, you know, there's all the contact information. If somebody really, you know, likes what they see, absolutely give us a call. We're a small team and uh, super accessible and always really excited to talk to people. Yeah, and I met Barbara because she gave a, a speech at a at an event, and I was like, man, she's really poised and, and interesting, and so we called you up, and here we are. So thank you so much for Absolutely. coming Absolutely. Glad to have made the connection. <laughs>